0: Welcome to Millions of Screens, IndieWire's TV industry-focused podcast. I'm creative producer Leo Garcia, joined as always by TV awards editor Libby Hill and TV deputy editor Ben Travers. On today's episode, we'll be talking about last week's episode. (laughs) Uh, Episode, 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 episode. This is
1: the millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show.
0: Now it's time for The Clicker, our recap of the biggest news items from this past week. This past week of Watchmen was a pretty mind-bending episode. I think it's an episode that you're in or you're out on at this point, right? I would would think so. I
1: I have to believe it. I have to think that that episode is really going to be the one that if people were sort of waiting and seeing and being like, oh, well, I'll catch up with it once the season is over. I think the reaction to that episode is something that people are like, oh, okay, I might... I might have to start watching week to week. I need to get caught up. I need to see what's happening.
2: Here. Yeah, I I do agree, and I think I think the the kind of overwhelming response we've seen, the positive overwhelming response we've seen for it so far should should handle that. And at the same time, I, I saw a couple people getting into a discussion um, on Twitter, of all places, because that's where the great conversations take place. Uh, kind of arguing about like, is this another one of those shows where oh, I had to wait six episodes for it to like figure itself out and do what it's trying to do and that's not what happened here Watchmen didn't Watchmen is still the same show it's always been this was just such a game-changing episode that if for whatever reason you wanted to give it another chance or if you fell off or or whatever it was then this is just another reason to kind of keep going with it but to say that you know all of a sudden it figured out its tone or all of a sudden it, it got good that's Absurd. So I, I'm just squashing that.
1: Now. I would argue to that I would to that point, I would argue that there is a huge difference between, oh, it took the show this long to figure itself out. And, oh, it took me this long to figure the show out. Right. Um, and people who are casual viewers may conflate the two. Yeah, and,
2: uh, and I think we've had this discussion with Succession, right? Because I believe yeah. like um, a lot of people were talking about the first season of Succession being one of those things where, oh, I had to wait for it to get good. And I, I don't really agree with that either. I think it's more of the Matt zoller argument that t- TV teaches you how to watch it, which we've, again, discussed before.
1: I, I think watchmen, watchmen. that we all probably had a lot of expect or a lot of people had expectations on what Watchmen was going to be. Mm-hmm. And if they, something that a professional contact of Maya is running into with their weekly reviews of Watchmen is they are reviewing it with someone much younger who is un- completely unfamiliar and who is also completely unfamiliar with the Damon Lindelof sort of house style of storytelling. So, you know, in the third episode when Jean Smart shows up and it's sort of an episode based around her, it's like, what the fuck is happening? Like, I don't understand who this person is. I thought this show was about Regina King. So yeah, if, if these if this is a new audience that's never been reached before by the showrunner or this creator, then then there's a there's a learning curve, and I think by episode six, maybe they'll finally see.
2: Yeah, I would I would say that, and I think I mentioned there. this in the review. I would say that episode six is kind of the first one that really helps define what Watchmen is trying to say about a lot of the topics that it brings up. Um, and at the same time, I would also argue that because because of what a lot of people hang up seem to be about watching it so far, they all seem to relate back to it's not answering enough questions or it's too confusing or it's not following a pattern that I'm familiar with. And I don't think that this episode changes that. I think that this episode just kind of emphasizes it in a way that is more accessible because it's telling a story that could almost be seen outside of the rest of the context um, of the show, but but it doesn't answer any questions. I think future episodes are going to answer those questions, but that's not what you get out of this. Like the point of it wasn't, hey, we're finally gonna catch up and you're gonna, you know, know all these things you didn't know before. It answers a couple of things, but they all answer a couple of things. So if that was your hang up, then it's not gonna it's not a drastic shift.
1: I am um... Actually, going to start selling the show to people with like, "Hey, did you love Olive Kittredge? Because the show is exactly <laughs> like that. It's like a loosely related collection oh. of short stories with sort of a central character that runs through them all. I mean, central I think this, I think
0: insidious this, mystery. I think what makes what Damon Lindelof is doing with the show so amazing is that. He is legitimately taking what the book did and doing that in television form. Yeah, no, he, and, for, he, and for the comic readers who might be upset by some of the sort of retconning he's done, he's actually doing the most faithful adaptation, which is like he's taking this narrative and splitting it out into various portions that, when looked at from above, is more than the sum of its parts. Yeah, I, I think, and also, I read PDpedia every week. <laughs> Got to read PDpedia,
2: <laughs> but like also that that kind of I feel like all of the discussion again around. You know, it being a reflection of the comics in some way or being a sequel to the comics in some way emphasizes the point that you you have to read the comics to understand it. And so many people keep falling back on that even when they're told like repeatedly that's not true. And it's not true. You don't need the comics,
0: they're just helpful. Um It's not true. Especially after episode five and six, it's especially not true. But I do think I do think if you could just
2: Summarize it a little bit easier. You could be like, "Yes, it is a sequel to Watchmen. It it is a sequel. You don't, but you don't need to know the original to appreciate the sequel." I think that was the hardest selling point in describing it simply as a sequel. Like from the outset, it's like if we say it's a sequel, everybody's like, "Well, then I gotta go back and watch. It. I gotta do all this research, and I want to understand it." And blah blah blah. But I have
1: to really, watch Zack
0: Snyder's Watchmen. Oh,
1: God. Let me God. say this, like, not <clears> to <throat> in the face the of what you've just argued very well, Ben. Can one of you tell me um, sort of the importance of Hooded Justice's story from the comics and, and how it relates to that episode?
0: Well, they they, they no one knows who, no one knows who he is in the original comic book. They assume he was a a traveling strong man.
1: Right, I think I saw that.
0: But of a of I think Russian origin potentially because he didn't speak much. Um, there was the implication that he may have been gay. But that, that was also not confirmed in, in the books. It's all in Hollis Mason's, like, autobiography. Um, and they have, like, a picture of the strong man next to a picture of Hooded Justice. And it's like, these two, could the body type is similar? But there was no answer to who Hooded Justice was. Which is why I think a lot of viewers of Watchmen sort of latched on to... Uh, Angela's grandfather potentially being put to justice. A lot of viewers
2: of Watchmen, meaning Leo. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think a lot of people. You you mentioned that a lot of people had that thought. Uh, I think I just said that because I didn't want to like Give it away when yeah. you threw out that theory. I think it's I just very to difficult
1: like, for us <laughs> not, to like
2: <laughs> not spoil
1: having that. seen the episodes and having you theorizing to us about episodes and things that we have seen. So we're like, Yeah, maybe. Like every time you say anything, I'm like, eh, Yeah, maybe. I just maybe. try that to give happen. a very
2: neutral answer, like yeah. supportive, but neutral.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I've been
0: wrong about things. He was on Jupiter, not Mars. Know. That was me. No, but, I said Mars. Uh, no, but I mean, I guessed he was on Mars. <laughs> oh, sorry. I guessed he was on Mars and he turned <laughs> right. out to be on Jupiter. Sure. yeah. And I guess that the grandfather was hooded justice immediately. <laughs> wow, what an idiot. He got the planet wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so Libby, uh, do you want to chat at all about uh, the Paley Center event you attended last week, which honored, I think, five uh, comedy legends?
1: Yes. Luminaries
0: I mean, of the comedy realm?
1: Yes, it was incredible. It was a fundraiser for, for the Paley uh, Media Center, but it honored um these amazing talents that i can't believe were i was in the same room with but it was um bob newhart it was carl reiner it was uh norman lear it was carol burnett and it was lily tomlin and they all spoke and it was it was amazing and it, they pulled from the obviously the extensive paleomedia archives and and made like these amazing montages for for every person and it just uh What I left the evening thinking about was how we haven't made as many advances in comedy, especially on television, as I would like to see. Like, Carol Burnett told a story about how she, the only reason she got her own show is because of a clause in her contract with CBS when she went to them and was like, I want to do a comedy variety show. They're like, "Mm, that's really a guy thing. So it's not really a place for you gals. And it's like oh that's great that she went and she kind of broke through that ceiling but it's not as though we have a bunch of (laughs) variety or late night talk uh shows featuring women right now it's not like there's parody there um so it's very depressing to think that you know it's been 50 years and what really has changed it's also very heartbreaking to me to see norman lear at like 97 years old out there, still trying to diversify television comedy, um, in his late 90s, still fighting the good fight, and you know, losing. Like it, it's still television, uh, situational comedy, is is still so predominantly white, and it's a huge bummer. But it was it was very inspiring in that these people are still with us. There's still plenty we can learn from them, and. Um, Bob Newhart is still really fucking funny, and he's like 90-some years old. He got up there. He was the first person awarded. He gave a 25-minute speech just basically going through his entire life. And I laughed, and it was amazing because I was like, I don't know. I'm going to have a chance to hear Bob Newhart speak for 25 minutes. So it was nice. Love your legends while you can.
0: Guys, it's Thanksgiving week. What are you thankful for this TV year? It's a great question, Leo. Um,
2: I, I have I have problems thinking about why anyone would care what I personally am thankful for. So I twisted this question around a little bit. And I was like, what should TV fans be thankful for? And then I'll try to incorporate as little of my own perspective as possible. Okay. So yeah, instead, that's what people
1: so, are, are tuning into, to hear no one's perspective. Well, well no, just not
0: mine. They want... Yours. Yours is good. He's ascribing his thoughts onto the populace, which is also kind of fun. Yeah, that's, which
2: so, is I mean, presumptive.
1: that's actually very, that's so much worse.
0: Well, I am going to start with something that, no,
2: I don't think a lot of people in this room agree with, which is too much TV is good. I am thankful for too much TV. I am thankful that we have a whole lot of content out there to choose from, uh, even though it is slowly crushing us. And um, a lot of it is becoming kind of an amorphous blob of of kind of good, okay, decent television that people can't distinguish from each other. Um, but without all of the all of the TV, without all of the choices, then there would be fewer shows. And I think we'd just have more of the stuff that looks the same. So going back to an older argument of this content surge, this upcoming middle of, however we want to say it, streaming war we're in, um, I think it's good because without it, we Strange. wouldn't have certain things that are great. Um I am very thankful for, personally, Tuca and Bertie season one. Um, I recognize that that is both a <laughs> a very sad statement because there is no season two, uh, but I'm choosing right now to be thankful that we got the season that we did because I have rewatched it a lot since it came out, since it's been canceled. It's absolutely one of my favorite things this year. It will be something that I go back to on a regular occurrence. Um, and I think that, a lot of, with a lot of the conversation focused on what's coming next and how long something's going to go, we lose focus of what we've got. And that includes stuff like Glow. I'm very thankful we're going to get a final season of Glow. I'm very thankful we're going to get a final season of Dear White People. I know that, I mean, I think with Glow that it could have run longer and it could have been very successful running longer, but four seasons is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, Four seasons of either of those shows, which I don't know if they would have existed anywhere else, had Netflix not come along, had the content boom not come along, I am going to appreciate those four seasons and especially the four years we've gotten to spend with them and we'll get to spend with them, um, you know, once the new ones come out. So uh, personally, I'm thankful for Tug and Bertie, but I hope that, that people are at least somewhat appreciative of how much TV we have, even though, yes, it is going to kill us and it is, you know, taking good things
0: from us too. Well, Libby, what is something you're thankful for this TV year?
1: I mean, I, I feel like this is so, so appropriate given Ben espousing that we should be grateful for all that we have on the TV landscape, which I, part of me totally agrees with. But at the same time, one of the things that I am most thankful for this year is that Game of Thrones is finally over. Um, for as much as we have been caught in this constant swirl of content and new shows and peak TV and, again, streaming wars, there was so much of our bandwidth sucked up by Game of Thrones by trying to feed that specific monster and uh, to the exclusion of things like Tuca and Birdie, to the exclusion of things like Unbelievable, like, like all of these shows, all of these smaller shows that really could have used and benefited from our attention um, that we, we just couldn't give them. We couldn't spare those words for them because Game of Thrones demanded, um, coverage. It demanded attention. And so with no like vitriol, (laughs) vitriol in my heart, I am glad that it came to an end. I'm glad that, you know, 12 months from now, I'm not going to be sucked back into writing the same stories that I have for the last however many years and that maybe the landscape will stay clear enough for for something else to percolate and and rise through the ranks,
0: or several something else's,
1: like The Witcher. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, I was gonna say I'm thankful for um, Witcher the, season two,
2: the fact that the next Game of Thrones. I don't think will be anything like Game of Thrones. So I, I look forward to whatever that next show is because I too am I'm happy it's gone. Maybe with a little vitriol in my heart.
0: Ben, you have a semicolon and then you have some other things. What? Else, so you mentioned, you only mentioned Toucan um, Birdie.
2: I'm thankful. And again, in the spirit of the holiday, I'm going to be thankful for something that I normally rail against. Uh, I'm thankful for Disney. Ugh. Oh, wow reinstalling the idea that weekly releases are good. Mainly, I'm thankful for weekly releases, but Disney with The Mandalorian, by releasing that once a week, they're reminding people of the value of things that are released weekly as opposed to something being released all at once. Libby has thoughts.
1: Ben, (laughs) I am so happy you said this because as I was driving in today, I thought about adding it to my list. I was like, God, it's such a relief to have weekly releases and... Um and yeah, Disney is kind of the highest profile, um, conveniently for getting Apple for the moment. But these new two streaming players are like, Yeah, there's nothing wrong with weekly reviews re- releases on some on some fronts. And I they're not wrong.
2: Yeah, and on, on a very selfish level, I love weekly releases as a writer because I get to You know, For the shows that are worth it, you get to cover them more extensively. You have more opportunities to talk to as many people involved with it as you can. You can spread that coverage out because that's usually people are interested in it longer. But I do think that strictly from a fan standpoint, it's beneficial to have those weekly releases, even though at this point a lot of people are trained to be like, I need the next one, give me the next one. I'm not going to start until it's all out there. Well, fine, you can wait until it's all out there if that's the only way you're willing to engage with TV. But at least by then, by the time that happens... All of the con- all of the all of the articles you could possibly want for, all the interviews you can watch on your your phone or your laptop, all of the extra content around it, all of the information about whether or not it's going to continue, um, what kind of awards it's got going on, what the creators are doing next, like what you can look forward to from the people who you like most in that series, that's all going to be out there. and it's all going to be because we were able to savor that show for a long period of time. And when I look back on, uh, this year one of the the bigger shows that i enjoyed savoring are ones that are a little bit smaller and and don't get the audiences that that a lot of you know like the mandalorian is presumably getting and you know what everybody called the last great weekly water cooler show game of thrones which i again i don't believe but um, that's what they ascribe to it. They're they're not getting those numbers, but we still get to appreciate them over a longer period of time, and there's a better chance of people finding them because of that, I think, because of that weekly release. And that's uh, Veep, which ended, which is over now. So again, if you were waiting to watch all of Veep until it was over, good fucking luck. But I mean, enjoy it. It's great. It's worth it. Um, and then Better Things, which is ongoing uh, on FX, uh, I know Libby and I both love Pamela Adlon. We want to throw as much support her way as humanly possible. Um, but those those weekly rollouts for those shows, they're they're a lot denser than they appear. Like you can watch an, an episode of Better Things and move on to the next one, and just kind of live in that experience if you want to, live in that world that she's created. Um, but you can also just watch one of those episodes and then kind of work your way back through it and be like, well, what was she tackling with with this little chunk? And then what was kind of the overarching part of it? And then what were the themes that connected to the things that I saw before? And you can kind of appreciate a lot more of what's going on there. And so much of it is just good. Like so much of what Better Things is trying to do is just trying to be positive. Um, and I was I was just very thankful to be able to live in that for, you know, two months instead of one weekend. Right. And I can't tell you how valuable that is for anybody who watches TV, like for anybody who's just always going to be watching TV. Having that thing around that you love and that m- helps you
0: feel better, that's, that's something to be thankful for. Like longer, having that around
1: right. longer. So. Right,
0: Libby, which of these things do you want to talk about next? You have several things left.
1: I do. I just wasn't sure. I wanted to make sure I had a, I, I had a bunch to choose from. I, I mean, I think that...
0: If you had to pick one.
1: If I had to pick one, I I would say I'm really grateful for season twos, um, which is what makes me a little sad about uh, Tuka and Birdie, uh, like Ben was referencing earlier, because it, it was one and done, but what a great season it was. But this season, uh this tv season this year so much of what i really loved on television was the the second season of a show which which really season 2s are hard because mm-hmm. a lot of the time they're either let's redo the the first season or uh or it's you know let's ruin the show <laughs> or it's you know let's figure out a way to find our next gear and um, specifically with two shows my favorite shows uh HBO Succession and Amazon Prime sort of fleabag their season twos were so remarkable and so <laughs> their second season were so were so remarkable and and so finely tuned. Um, it was just a joy to sit and and revel in these universes that they'd created. And they were so different. Um, Fleabag was so small and so intimate and so, so bound to these very human fears and emotions and relationships. And Suggestion was the same, except with people who didn't always understand their own humanity. Um, I'm grateful for second seasons. I'm grateful for shows that may be underwatched, but whose outlets believe in them enough to give them a second season and allow them to make something perfect and beautiful and great.
0: I'd argue that your point is actually for second seasons of shows that had good to great first seasons, because I think that's the that's the trap. If you have a bad first season, you get a second season, you usually have time to like retool. But like the Fleabags and Successions of the World, they had really strong first seasons, and that's when you might ruin it, right?
1: Well, yeah. That, I mean, that's the risk. Like, I think...
0: The offices and parks and recs of the world.
1: Yeah, they're starting with a low bar.
0: They start. They start sort of like on a wobbly, on wobbly footing, and so then you have time to sort of.
1: You're absolutely right, Leo. But in the, at the same time, like that's the concern about Russian Doll season two, right? Is like, how do you do a second season of that show? Um, so the bar the bar is very high, and and there's a lot of risk there. And so when it works out, it's delightful.
0: Ben, ben wrote for me, you are a coward picket, so I guess what I'm thankful for this year is Ben telling me that I'm thankful for Werner Herzog <laughs> on The Mandalorian. There's nothing like watching Werner Herzog not care at all, and yet do a better job than almost everybody on that show.
1: <laughs> My favorite thing about Warner Herzog is that it, it it appears like he does not give a shit about that show Zero except fucks. for baby Yoda. I actually I actually have I have one more thing. Oh, Can add I have it. one more thing. Okay, because I feel like this is something for all of us. Oh. Um I am so happy about the Regina King ascension. Like she is really living up to her name, which literally means Queen King. Mm-hmm um as well and and she deserves it like she's so great in Watchmen, she was so great in leftover she's doing so many great films and um yeah she's perfect and i'm so so happy about it and i wonder if that could serve as a good transition for our next segment
0: what's our next segment is it wakeboarding Ben, with with Am I supposed to say something now? Wait, I mean, what are this we is your down? segment. Time out, time oh. out. Uh, one last thing. Do we need to coin whatever the version of uh, the Regina-sense is? Is that not? Is that, yeah, Regina-sense. Yeah, Regina-sense. Yeah, it's renaissance. Welcome to Wakeboarding with, with Ann Dowd. <laughs> Welcome to Wakeboarding with Ann Dowd, uh, our weekly feature where Ben talks about something leftovers adjacent.
2: I feel like we've covered quite a bit of Watchmen this week. Mm-hmm. Um, but since we did just talk about the regina uh, I would probably say that even though she'd won, I believe, two Emmys before this happened, um, the regina probably formally started with the trampoline scene in The Leftovers. Leo, spoiler alert. Oh. Um, Put on your earmuffs. And her partner in that trampoline scene was none other than Carrie Coon. And luckily, I got to speak to Carrie Coon last week about um, a new podcast she has out called Mother Hacker. Um, it is not associated with this podcast whatsoever, but maybe we can work on that by yeah. bringing Carrie Coon in sometime. Leo, I'm looking at you. Yeah, I'm. I don't I'm know responsible. Why. <laughs> um, well, you you handle all of our shit for yeah. us. So, uh, but no, uh, Carrie Coon is wonderful. She's obviously the star of The Leftovers and Fargo and The center and so many other things. Um, but. Uh, i just I just thought it was interesting when I was listening to that podcast, I really started to realize kind of how um amazing she is as just a voice actor. Like she you know she does theater, she does movies, she does TV. she does she's all forms of acting. But the voice acting is something that she's so specifically. Kind of worked at over recent years, both for podcasts and audiobooks. And um, she talked a little bit about ADR and and doing um, the Avengers movie, where she was not doing voiceover or voice acting necessarily, but she was in that motion capture suit and um, running around. But you know, her voice was kind of the only thing you actually see of her or hear of her in the movie. You don't see anything that's actually Carrie Coon. Do you know what her character um, name is?
0: Her character name
2: was oh, I do. Um, Proxima, Proxima Midnight. You got personas. it. Yep. You're a fan for someone of who hates <laughs> yeah. Um, So yeah, no, I, I really, I enjoyed speaking with her because she is someone who, as a TV critic who thinks far too long and far too hard about television, um, you talk to a lot of people who are in television or who are you know, in the profession. And it's it becomes clear that they're not thinking as hard as you do, which is usually fine because it's unhealthy how much we think about television. Um, but for certain people like Carrie Coon, she thinks about every choice she makes and everything she's doing 10 times more than you ever could. And thus kind of getting her insight into how she goes through that process was incredibly valuable. And I hope
0: that I got some of that onto the page. But And then the last thing we do every week is turn to Libby and ask Libby, Do you have a show on Quibi yet?
1: Okay, listen, no, but it could happen. I feel like 2020 is my year.
0: And then you'll be thankful for your Quibi show.
1: Yes, but in the meantime, I am thankful for this show.
0: And I'm thankful for
1: you guys.
0: I'm very thankful
2: to Quibi that they haven't given Libby a show yet because then then she's still on our show. She wouldn't be
1: on the
0: pod, yeah. How dare you? The podcast wouldn't exist. Millions of Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about her TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brideson. Our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue. You can find us on Twitter at A Million Screens, at Midwest Spitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Adrian Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. It's official, we're on Stitcher. I just had to fill out a form. That's all it took. That was the hang up. <laughs> I don't like forms. Uh, this is Ben, Libby, and Leo reminding you, as always, that you shouldn't let poets lie to you.
1: You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool <laughs> podcast.